Michael Miller is the author of The Ultimate Guide to Bitcoin. Michael, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Good to be here with you. This is the first episode in a week of Bitcoin interviews, and you're a perfect guest because many of the people listening are software engineers who understand things like public key cryptography and hashing, but they may not be familiar with Bitcoin other than what they have heard in passing. And your book was written to explain the technology to anybody. To start off, what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is, uh, uh, some people call it a cryptocurrency or a virtual currency. Uh, it is definitely not a traditional currency, but it's a way to exchange uh, value, uh, essentially digitally and virtually anonymously from one person to another person or from one organization to another organization. And I want to emphasize to the listeners right now, if you're thinking, okay, Bitcoin is useful just because it allows me to electronically transfer funds like PayPal or Apple Pay, you're missing the point. The breakthrough functionality Bitcoin provides is decentralization. So what is decentralization and why is it useful? Well, what this means, you know, in, in traditional currencies such as the U.S. dollar or the euro or, you know, take your pick, uh, the currency is controlled by a central a central government or a central organization, a central bank. And uh, they they decide how much money is out there and how much money isn't out there and, and what happens to their money and, and to a certain degree decide how much their money is worth. Um, and through that, we've got various official means of exchanging that data. I mean, we use credit card companies and we use PayPal to, to send money back and forth. And we just hand people dollar bills, too, uh, from time to time. But with a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, there is no central governing organization. There is no apparatus. I mean, there is no one group of people that controls you know, what happens with Bitcoin. There is no Bitcoin help desk. There is no Bitcoin tech support. There is no, you know, none of this. It's all kind of out there in the cloud. And the advantage of that to, to some people, one is, well, you get away from that kind of control. You don't have the government control. So if you're, you're, you're big on not having government control, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're not dealing with governments. Uh, it also uh, has, has a huge amount of anonymity because we're not going through big companies and, and banks and credit card companies and, and the government keeping track of this that we can exchange funds without anybody knowing it. And that has advantages for a lot of different things, both uh, legal and illegal, uh, for that matter. Um, it, it also, because it is not tied to any national currency, um, it's, a, it's a decent way for, for countries or, or, or people who um, uh, have currency issues. I mean, uh, if, you, if you've got some developing third world countries, that really their own currency isn't worth worth a damn, you know. Uh, but they, they can exchange money in Bitcoin and be tied into something larger and have that actually be more stable <laughs> than what they're used to doing. So there are a lot of advantages to it. Now, there are disadvantages to it, too, because it isn't backed by anything, by any organization or government. Uh, it, uh, I mean, it's kind of the wild, wild west out there in terms of Bitcoin, we don't have a national, you know, Securities and Exchange Commission that, that's regulating this stuff, or uh, an FDIC that's guaranteeing investments. I mean, you can lose your Bitcoin, and you lose your Bitcoin. You know, you deal with a Bitcoin exchange that goes under or gets hacked, and you're just out of luck. <laughs> I mean, could there's you no backup to it whatsoever. Could you define the term fiat currency? Well, fiat currency uh, in in traditional currencies, you really have two types, although today we really only have one type. In the old, old days, a currency was backed by a commodity. I mean, people might know the term the gold standard or remember the gold standard where, you know, the, the price of the dollar was essentially backed by the U.S. gold reserves or a country's gold reserves. Well, a fiat currency is still run by a larger entity like a government, but it is not backed by any commodity. So today, you know, the U.S. government... Um, can print as much money as they want to, <laughs> essentially. That's, that's within their purveyance because it's not tied to a commodity. But it is you know, backed up by the U.S. government. I mean, you're not going to say, oh, U.S. government, that's, that's no good. No, no it, it, is, it is backed by the government just as the euro is, is backed by, by uh, the European organization. Um, it's not backed 
up by any, you know, a block of gold over here or anything like it used to be in the old days. We went off the gold standard back in the 70s, I think, under Nixon. But um, So the value of a fiat currency seems to be the fact that you have an institution that's providing support. It's like the value of, of your Windows operating system is the fact that Microsoft, you know, will support it. Microsoft will continue to have updates to it uh, in some sense. So when you think about fiat currencies like U.S. dollars or pesos, what are some ways in which intermediaries can take advantage of their power over fiat currencies? Well, uh, I mean, if we, um, I mean, if we look, let's say, at the U.S. system, I mean, the government can control, you know, the the rate of inflation per se by by how much currency we have out there. If we've got uh, a slowdown in the economy, they can just print more money, uh, and and it's backed up by them. I mean, it isn't backed up again by anything hard, you know, in gold or diamonds or whatnot, but it is backed up by the United States government. The government says it's worth this much, and it's worth that much. Um, because of fiat currencies like that, obviously, then that money is exchanged by all sorts of entities and organizations, banks, uh, the stock exchange, I mean, uh, PayPal, credit card companies, they're all used to dealing with that that money because it is backed up by the United States government. They know it's not going to go away tomorrow. Now, that might be different if you're in Greece. I mean, Greece has a fiat, well, Greece is using the euro right now. But, uh, you know, if Greece, you know, suddenly dropped the euro, you know, which, which has always been a possibility recently, and they went back to the drachma or whatever their currency is, um, you know, it may be backed by the Greek government, but it may not be worth anything also. So, so there's kind of a downside to fiat currency, but not with major, you know, governmental powers. So, but what about banks? How how can bank how do banks exploit their role in the fiat currency system? Well, they they make money off of every transaction for one. Uh, you know, every little thing you do at your bank uh, or anybody does at a bank is charged. So you know they might be making half a penny here, half a penny there, whatever. But it all adds up. Uh, they also get to store the money. You know, when you deposit the money, uh, it, it's sitting in. You know. They don't have dollar bills sitting in their banks anymore, but the the digital equivalent of that is, is sitting in their digital equivalent of a vault, and uh, they're earning money while on your money while they're storing your money. So you know it, it's uh, it, it's a matter of having a middleman there, and the middleman being able to make money just by handling things and handing things back and forth. And also, they could borrow against it and do all sorts of things that they could potentially endanger the money that you have in that institution. Although it's you know, FDIC insured or... It's FDIC insured, and of course we still have the, the issue of too big to fail. So, sure. Uh, yeah, so they can take our money and do anything they want with it and gamble it away, uh, which essentially they've been doing <laughs> over the past decades or so. And, uh, you know, because of the bank's size, because of those institutions' size, uh, probably nothing's going to bad going to happen to them because it might, might be bad happening to us, mind you, but, but to the banks themselves. You know, un- unfortunately, they're... You know, they're, they're major powers. They're, they're, they're kind of protected just because of their size and their influence. So now we've articulated why centralization is dangerous. You know, you have to have money in these banks. These banks are inherently problematic. So, but now explain why we do need banks. So, and I think the, the, the most iconic way to explain this is the double spending problem. You, we have this thing called the double spending problem where, um, if if you know this classic problem in uh, in cryptocurrencies in the past, where if you have if you have a dollar in in your cryptocurrency, you can essentially spend that dollar twice, right? You give it to you give it to Betsy and you give it to Alice, and uh, and you've said you've made two transactions in the ledger um, to these two different people, but because you don't have a central institution to verify that um, that you know these transactions are both valid, um, you know, it, it, this is problematic. So so we've got this thing called called the double spending problem. Yeah, because w- with virtual currency, it isn't backed by anything. It's not in a bank. It's not in some huge ledger. Not, again, this is before Bitcoin. So basically, it depends on your word, right? You say you have this virtual currency, so you're going, as you said, you're going to give some of it to Betsy and some of it to, to Bob over here. And th- there's nothing really to check on that. What Bitcoin did, and, and was one of several virtual, I mean, there are actually hundreds of cryptocurrencies out there now, all operating with similar technology, but Bitcoin was really the first to popularize it. 
is to use something called a blockchain. And uh, as you mentioned before, blockchain is really the key thing behind it, the, the real important thing behind Bitcoin. And what a blockchain does, it is essentially adds, it, it is a master ledger of every single Bitcoin transaction out there, period. And it is stored, it is decentralized, it's out there in the cloud, it's on multiple computers, on multiple users' computers, a copy of the blockchain is. So you can't, you know, if you go in and hack it on one computer, it still exists on a thousand other computers. So, so that, that's kind of a safety thing there. It's almost unhackable because of the encryption it uses. But basically the way it works is when you make a Bitcoin transaction, if I pay you one Bitcoin for the services that you rendered to me, all right, that, is, that transaction gets entered into the blockchain. Essentially, it's a new block in a chain of blocks. And, and, and since that registers every single Bitcoin transaction, it's registered. You can't double spend something because it's there and it's out. The, the, while the participants are private, the transaction is public. So that transaction is out there. Everyone sees it. It's out there on multiple computers. You can't hack into it. If you try and duplicate that transaction or spend that Bitcoin again, you can't because it's just out there. And this, in this blockchain, I mean, if you envision it as a series of boxes, let's say, you know, one connected to another, like in a PERT diagram or something, I mean, it's long. I mean, it's thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of transactions long and growing every day because every new transaction that's done is a new block added to the blockchain out there in the public. So you can't steal it. You can't double spend it. You can't do anything like that. It's just there. Right, and so I want to get into more of the engineering stuff, um, but first I want to talk a little bit more about the, the higher level. So so we've articulated why centralization is dangerous, we've articulated why we needed it in the past, and we've articulated why Bitcoin and the blockchain allows us to not need centralization anymore, uh, at least in some contexts. Is there any usage for centralization Post Bitcoin, post blockchain, like what is what is centralization still useful for um, beyond uh, beyond its classical beyond its classical now deprecated uh, ideas? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say that it's deprecated. I mean, there is value in, in in a lot of different approaches, and certainly to the average consumer, there is value to centralization in that it lends support, security, insurance even peace of mind, per se, if you want to think of it that way. Um, again, the problem with Bitcoin, the problem, I mean, I would not recommend that my, my aunt goes out <laughs> and gets into Bitcoin, for example, because for a number of different reasons, but one of which is because it really isn't secure. It isn't uh, backed by anything. That I mean, when something goes wrong, it goes wrong. You know, if someone steals your Bitcoin wallet or, you know, hacks into a Bitcoin exchange, you're you're just out. You know there there is nothing backing it up, and I think that's an issue to 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 function as a stable currency, which I don't think Bitcoin is doing today, uh, for a number of reasons. But to function as a stable currency, I think it needs you know security uh, in addition to stability. And stability is the other issue on it right now. I mean, uh, right now the price is up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down on Bitcoin, which you know is fine for a uh, a medium of speculation, but is not really, you know, on currency you spend every day, you don't want it to be worth one thing today and something else completely different tomorrow. So, you know, Bitcoin is still kind of, I look at it as almost a proof of concept, you know. It's built on a technology. It's the first currency built on technology, uh, which is fascinating. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to replace the dollar tomorrow. What about what about government? Like, it could could we use the blockchain technology to replace a lot of the functionalities that we currently uh, we currently vote on? Um, how could government change with blockchain technology? Well, blockchain technology is a lot of different entities are looking at blockchain technology. I know that the uh, the art world is looking at it, for example, as a way to authenticate uh, pieces of art. And transactions there. So you know that you talk about your double spending thing. Well, talk about pieces of art where you've got forgeries going on out there and transactions that are off the books and that sort of thing. Well, if every transaction got 
uh, you know, put into a blockchain, you're not going to have to worry about forgeries and that sort of thing. You're going to know where the real transactions are. The world of music is looking into it as a means of compensating artists for uh, their music being played. You know, right now you've got to, oh, I mean, the music industry is a mess, has been a mess forever. It's more of a mess today than ever. Because of and, the middlemen. Yeah, because of the middlemen, exactly. And because, you know, where does music gets, get played? It gets played in a club here, and it gets played on the radio here, and it gets played on this internet station and the streaming service. And keeping track of it is horrible, and there's always somebody in the middle, you know, getting their 50% also. And it's never a small percent. It's always about 50% in the music industry. Well, if all of these music transactions got entered into a blockchain, we can get payments directly to musicians without middlemen, and and it's going to be tracked a whole lot better. Um, uh, I, I was reading an article today where uh, NASDAQ is actually uh, looking at incorporating the blockchain as a means of managing and verifying their transactions. So that technology can be used in a lot of different ways uh, without being a standalone thing like Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting concept, really, behind the whole thing on how we keep track of stuff. And it really is, uh, in a way, kind of a crowdsourced thing because it really does depend on the participation of a lot of different users and their computers to handle the encryption and to handle the storage and to decentralize uh, the, the storage on it. So uh, it, it, by decentralizing it that way, it almost makes it more secure. So now that we have some context around the practical applications of Bitcoin, of the blockchain, let's talk about some of the engineering. The, and like we said, the real innovation is not Bitcoin, but rather the blockchain. Bitcoin is, is like email, and the blockchain is like the whole internet. And what I mean by that is Bitcoin is certainly cool, it's certainly an innovation, just like email, but you can... You know, all you can do with email is just send, like, messages with text, which is great. But, you know, with the Internet, you can do all kinds of things. You can get on Facebook. You can use Google Docs. You can do VOIP. There's so much more functionality. And with the blockchain, the idea of decentralization is much more generalized. So now let's talk in a little more fine-grained engineering detail. What is the blockchain? Well, like I said, it really is a general ledger of, of transactions. When you go to uh, exchange a Bitcoin, buy a Bitcoin, sell a Bitcoin, pay someone or whatnot, uh, you, you, it involves public key encryption. So you send your public key to the other person. The other person sends his public key to you. Uh, and that message goes out to, uh, for want of a better word, let's call it the Bitcoin network. All right. And this is just a series of computers owned by individuals that have agreed to participate in these transactions. And, and what happens is that transaction, which is encrypted, has to be verified. And to be verified, um, a computer has to run a series of mathematical calculations on it without getting too technical more technical than, than I even understand, let alone can explain. But it's real heavy-duty brute, brute force computing sort of thing where a very heavy-duty uh, mining computer has to you know, solve these calculations. And the first, and as a matter of fact, multiple computers will go in and essentially bid on these things and try and solve the calculations. The first computer that, that solves the calculation, two things happen. One, the transaction is verified and is added to the blockchain. Uh, second, the, the computer that solved that calculation, that essentially verified that transaction, is awarded uh, a certain number of bitcoins as compensation. Uh, it's called bitcoin mining, and this is how, one, new bitcoins are created and, and how people and individuals, organizations are incented to participate in the whole bitcoin network and verify the transactions and that sort of thing. Once a transaction has been verified, it is added to the blockchain. That copy of the blockchain is then propagated across the entire network. So, you know, at any given time, you know, this computer, that computer, the other computer might have slightly different versions of the blockchain, you know, depending on what new transactions have been appended or not. But, you know, within a very short period of time, all those, all those versions come into congruence and we've got you know the same version now propagated across the entire network, and and because it is propagated on so many different computers, I mean that that's your security right there. 
And um, so I think that was a great explanation. Just to put a finer point on that, could you give a definition of a distributed ledger? Uh, distributed ledger is uh, essentially the blockchain, that that ledger is distributed across the entire network. Great. Um, and more broadly, how does a peer-to-peer network function? Well, a peer-to-peer network, of, of which this is kind of a peer-to-peer network, and as we're used to in the old days with Napster and and uh, and whatnot today, is essentially multiple computers connected together over the Internet, of course, that uh, share files or information of some sort without a central server. There is no central server in a peer-to-peer network. The the interactions, the transactions, the, the transfers go directly from one computer to another or in many cases from multiple computers to, to others. And so let's say I'm a new user who is joining this you know, peer-to-peer network, this Bitcoin network. How do I get started? <laughs> one, I'd recommend you probably don't. Uh, in, in terms of, of the of the support network, I mean, I'm not talking about tran- uh, uh, doing Bitcoin transactions itself, but in terms well, of the okay, Bitcoin sure. let's network, just, let's just the start mining with, network. Let's say sure. Before we get into the mining, let's just say if I want to get involved as a consumer, I want to have yeah. a Bitcoin wallet. I want to have some money. Uh, what does that mean? Like, what? How do I get a Bitcoin wallet, and how do I get some bitcoins? Well, there are numerous services out there. You can read my book and Google them, you know, without pushing any of them. CoinDesk, there's a ton of them out there. Uh, probably the easiest way is to find a Bitcoin exchange, of which there are dozens, if not hundreds, of them out there in different countries. And and we talk about Bitcoin not being centralized. Well, it kind of is with some of these Bitcoin exchanges because they try and facilitate the transactions. So the easiest way to go to it is to you know go to a Bitcoin exchange. Create an account and buy some bitcoins, which you can do with a credit card online. You can say, you know, I want to buy one bitcoin, and today a bitcoin is worth $286 or whatever the price is at this hour. And you give them your money, they create a bitcoin for you. Now, the confusing thing to the general public is that there is, we're talking about bitcoin, but there are no such things as bitcoins. You know, there's no physical coin, there's no paper money involved in bitcoin. In fact, there's not even a digital file that you store on your computer that is a Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoins essentially don't exist within the Bitcoin <laughs> ecosystem. What exists are records of the transactions. And the records of those transactions are stored in digital wallets. So when you want to um, get involved with Bitcoin, you have to install a digital wallet, a, an open source uh, piece of software on your computer or your smartphone or tablet or whatever. Uh, for that matter, if you go to some of the big Bitcoin exchanges, they will have cloud-based digital wallets for you, okay? And this wallet, this piece of software, will store records, encrypted records, mind you, of all your Bitcoin transactions. Uh, so every time you make a transaction, you'll, you'll get a new address for that transaction. It will be stored in your digital wallet. Uh, based on those transactions, the wallet calculates how many Bitcoins you have. But in and of itself, you're not storing a Bitcoin file. You're just storing a record of those transactions. So you get involved with this. You go to one of these Bitcoin exchanges. You either download a digital wallet software onto your computer or you decide to use their cloud-based digital wallet. You get all the encryption keys that you need to access your wallet. uh, And then you start buying, and for that matter, even selling, Bitcoin. And that's probably the easiest way for an individual to get into it. Now, obviously, you can also exchange Bitcoins from person to person without using an exchange because an exchange will take a little bit off the top, you know. Uh, but, you know, if, if, if it's you and me exchanging Bitcoin, we don't have to give anybody anything. And But again, you know, all the transactions still go out to the network to get verified and added to the blockchain, even if it's just us two individuals. But we would essentially send transaction records, you know, from my wallet to your wallet and we would exchange Bitcoin in that manner. And what Same thing ha- if you're buying something. If you go to a site like... Uh, over, uh, overstock.com or Tiger uh, Software, whatever Tiger Software is called today, uh, you would pay, use, essentially by sending funds from your Bitcoin wallet to the retailer's Bitcoin wallet. And once I have my wallet, I can participate in transactions, like you said. So, for example, I can find somebody who has Bitcoins and needs some programming work done. So let's say, like, I want to get some Bitcoins. I have no, I start with zero Bitcoins. I just have my wallet. And I just want to do some programming work, and I want to get paid in Bitcoins. 
So I'm going to go and do the work, and then they're going to pay me in Bitcoin. And now I've participated in the Bitcoin economy just as a simple consumer or, well, a worker, however you want to describe it. But what if I now find out that I was doing programming work for something, some malicious site, some like a porn site or something? I don't, I don't want this on my record. But the thing is, you know, my transaction, isn't it going to be broadcast to the entire network? And everybody is going to know that I've contributed code to like, you know, a porn site or something malicious. You know, how private are my Bitcoin transactions if I'm broadcasting them to the entire community? That's an excellent question, and it's one that's difficult to explain and to grasp. But essentially, while the transaction is public, that is, this wallet sent two Bitcoins to that wallet, the identity of the wallets are private. So that we know that this transaction took place, we don't know who it was. And that's the privacy part. And you can't trace it back because we're all talking about uh, you know, very strong encryption here. That you know the transaction exists, but we really don't know who did the transaction. That's a plus and a minus. It's a plus for anonymity, right? You, nobody knows that you worked for a porn site, or that they paid you and overpaid you or underpaid you, as the case may be. But also, it also means because it's totally anonymous. If you lose your wallet, uh, you you can't just go up to the blockchain and say, "Hey, that was my transaction, so give me my money." It's lost, you know, so you don't, because of the anonymity, you, you are also kind of at risk because there's no backup there, but it is anonymous. So if you're doing, you know, stuff you don't want people to know about and be quite honest, a, some subset of the Bitcoin economy is in illegal activities. It's a great, you know, if you want to buy illegal drugs or, or pay for a, a hit on your ex-wife or whatnot, you know, this is a pretty anonymous way to pay for it. Um, but I'm not saying that's the majority of Bitcoin. It's not, but but it is you know part of the is part. Put it another way, Bitcoin is a majority of the payment structure of illegal activities, but not necessarily the other way. <laughs> okay. uh, and it's understandable why, because it, it is anonymous. You can make these transactions, and again, the transactions are public. But who's doing the transactions and for what and why and where? Totally private. Right. Um, okay. So now let's say I want to actually mine some bitcoins. I've got my wallet, and I, 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 you know, as a caution to any listeners, obviously, you know, you probably don't want to get involved in mining, and we'll get into why you don't want to, but, <laughs> but what else, hypothetically, if I wanted to get involved in mining, what else do I need to get started? Well, to get involved in mining, you need a computer that can do these kind of brute force, high-speed calculations. And you say, oh, i got a computer just sitting over in the corner, let's just use that computer. You could... Okay. The problem is you're competing against people and organizations who have much, much more powerful computers. Because, I mean, let's say that uh, – I, I forget what the current rate of, of Bitcoin mining is today. But, I mean, let's say that I you earn – I think it's 25. Yeah, 25 I, I think 20, 24, 25, somewhere in there. So you earn 25 Bitcoin. Well, at 280 bucks, I mean, do the math here. That's uh, 7,500 bucks or so. Is that right? That that you would earn that that. That's not small change. I'd like to earn seventy five hundred bucks today just by having my my spare computer do some transactions for me. The problem is lots of other people would too. So you're competing with organizations, entities, some individuals who have invested a lot of money in some very powerful computers. There are companies out there that sell mining computers. I mean, these computers cost ten thousand dollars or more. They're not you know what you buy at Best Buy, right? Uh, they're even more powerful than the, the typical gaming computer. They're, in fact, the, the, the best ones are, are purpose-built for this purpose. And they you consume a lot of energy. They consume a lot of processing time to get this done. So there's a huge – if you're going to compete in Bitcoin mining, there's a huge investment involved. And you're probably not going to do it with just one computer. I mean the biggest Bitcoin miners have you know factories or, or warehouses – Full of these computers, uh, <laughs> and what they what we've discovered is that it isn't actually the cost of the computer that's the biggest expense. It's the cost of the energy running the computers. At some point, you, you start paying. You know, depending on the price of Bitcoin on any given day, you could actually expend more in energy costs and electrical costs than you earn back in Bitcoin mining. So what we find is a lot of the Bitcoin mining organizations have their facilities where energy is cheap. 
you know, where they're able to use hydroelectric energy or, you know, in countries or, or areas where the, the electricity costs are a lot cheaper than they would be, let's say, in downtown Manhattan. <laughs> so uh, the, the Bitcoin mining, while it can be profitable, and, and there are individuals and companies that have made a lot of money from mining Bitcoins, essentially, you know, working through hashing through all these transactions, the investment and the continuing expense of powering these computers makes it something for only the big boys to play in. Okay, so let's say I've uh, bought my supercomputer, I've moved to China, I'm living on the edge of a hydroelectric dam, uh, so, so my power is cheap. Um, what else do I need? Does, 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 do I need so so I, I, you know, I've got my setup, you know, I set up in my warehouse or whatever. Uh, do I need to go and download like the entire past history of the blockchain? Do I just like plug into it somehow? What like what are the what is the setup? What are the minutiae that I need to know? Well, I mean, there is particular software you need to use, which is you know not much. It's open source stuff. Uh, CG Miner, Easy Miner, blah blah blah. I mean, they're you know it's open source software you can download. Uh, you've got to have your own Bitcoin wallet, of course, so you can exchange the bitcoins back and forth. But that's basically it. I mean, yes, involved in the process, you're going to have to be downloading the blockchain as well, and that might take a little bit of time. Initially, but you've got the computing power there, you know, so that's not a big deal. I mean, how long, how, how big is the blockchain? Do you have any idea? Boy, yeah, I don't have the answer to that. Because, okay. I mean, but obviously it is growing with every single transaction. So, so it, uh, it, is, it is a little bit of a deal. It's not, so, you know, it is something that, you know, we could do if we, if we wanted to download the blockchain chain and have it on our computers, but it, you probably wouldn't want to. And is, how is it not getting to the size where this is just like intractable to constantly verify this gigantic chain of transactions, isn't it just, doesn't it just get so big that, that we can't, you know, we don't have the time to perform all the work or, or is it just? Well, you know, it's still manageable, although there is a, a theoretical limit on this that in terms of, it's interesting in the mining of Bitcoins that, and this is kind of laid out in the, I don't know whether we want to call them guidelines or whatnot behind uh, Bitcoin, but uh, the basis behind behind the whole concept is that at the very early stages uh, where they're really trying just to attract anybody to get involved, you earned more Bitcoin for each mining transaction. You know, So it started – I've got a chart somewhere in my book. I can't find it right now. Uh, where it started out, but it started out you earned a high number of Bitcoins. And after X number of transactions, after X number of Bitcoins have been earned, that rate goes down, the payment rate goes down. And after X more transactions, the rate goes down again. So over time, you know, if they're earning 25 Bitcoin today per transaction, you know, that's going to go down to one at some point in time in the future. The other thing that happens is there's a theoretical limit on the number of Bitcoins. So when we reach this limit, which is not going to happen for dozens of years uh, based on projections, then that's like all the Like a century, goes. right? Right. Uh, yeah, it, that's probably closer to it. Um, then that'll be it. That'll be all the Bitcoin there are. And then so, after that, why, why would people still be incentivized to do this mining? Because you have this, the incentivization for doing mining is, you know, you're verifying transactions. You're spending all this compute resource to verify transactions and you get paid to verify the transactions. So once all the Bitcoins have been mined, why would people still be incentivized to verify transactions? That's a good question, and I'm, I'm not sure there's an answer to that, other than a century from now we'll probably be using something else. Uh, and, and who knows what technology we'll be using behind it, right? It'll be some holographic uh, thing out there. Uh, and that's a fair question. Yeah, this is going to be like the, the Y2K bug. Yeah, uh, I, I think the general nature of why the payment rate declines is the expectation is that the value of Bitcoin increases, right? Which it has and it hasn't over time. I mean, if you got into Bitcoin uh, two, three years ago, at, at the beginning, three, four years ago, uh, I mean, Bitcoins were worth a couple pennies. And over time, that has increased. Uh, I mean, today we're at 280-some bucks uh, in terms of the value of Bitcoin. So if you bought in, we're doing Bitcoin mining at the very beginning, and you mined 1,000 Bitcoins, well, you're setting on some money right now, right? Uh, you know, if it, you know if something was worth pennies back then is worth $280 today, uh, which now gets into the speculative nature of the currency, which is how a lot of people view Bitcoin today. 
not so much as a viable currency, although we've talked about various ways that it can be and there are other ways that it can be. But I, most of the transaction volume today in Bitcoin is speculative. People are buying it saying it's going to go up or they're shorting it saying it's going to go down because it has. I mean, at one point the val- within the past year, year and a half or so, Bitcoin rose over $1,000 per, per Bitcoin in terms of value. And, you know, certainly if you got into a pennies on the dollar and it's now at $1,000, wow, what a deal. Well, now it's gone down. Now we're at 200. I mean, it actually dropped well below 200 earlier this year. And now it's come up a little bit. I mean, it's very, very volatile, which makes it very difficult to use as an everyday currency. But, you know, if you're speculating on it, as you would with hog bellies and pork futures and gold and diamonds, uh, you know, it's interesting in terms of a speculative currency. And that is what a majority of the transactions are today is pure speculation. People are gambling on it. Although, you know, what's, what's too bad is uh, that the, the speculation sometimes distracts, and this is why I spent so long at the beginning emphasizing, you know, the practical application, because the speculation tends to distract, you know, the mainstream media and lots of people who just see big numbers, and they're like, oh, it's money, blah, 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 money's, you know, we got to speculate, blah, blah, blah. And, like, in fact, my, my little brother was mining cryptocurrencies a few years ago, <laughs> and I would rebuke him for it because I was like, this is some kind of scam you're panning for gold, uh, you know, and and many people just really have trouble understanding why Bitcoin is more than an item of speculation. Um, and maybe I don't know. Maybe the nature of this is that people don't understand why their paper money is worth anything. People don't really think about money. It's become this background axiom uh, of, of of how the world works. Um, but. You know, it's worth talking about the speculation a little, a little more, and like how how big things could get. Like you think about like how people, how rich people have gotten off of the internet. Like it's you know, you people, Bill Gates, for example, right, essentially got rich off of the internet and made you know un uh, you know previously unfounded sums of money, and it makes you think like are are the the wealthy of the future? You know, if if like if if Bitcoin is as big as you know some of the uh, some of its proponents say it is like say it's literally like you know on on scale with with how important the internet was you know are we going to have like a new order of magnitude of wealth in the world you know that that is an interesting question the whole and you're right the the whole speculative nature of this really does blind us to to the importance of bitcoin i mean the important the importance is not that i can make you know, a billion dollars on it or that somebody will or somebody has or somebody's lost a billion also. I mean, somebody makes it, somebody else loses it. The importance is the technology behind it and how it can decentralize our transactions and our currency transactions. But, you know, I mean, you get into human nature and human, I mean, I people just like to make a quick buck. They want something for nothing. And the whole concept, oh, I can just let my computer run in the background and I can make money from that. Well, that's appealing to some people. Somebody says, wait, if I buy something for you know, $200 today and it's going to be worth $1,000 next month or, or six months from now, well, that's appealing too. I mean, we like to gamble. We like quick money. And what has happened certainly over the past year, probably more within the six month, past six months, is that we have got you know the professional financial speculators involved in Bitcoin. I mean, before a year or so ago, it was a very small community of traders. It was, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the Bitcoin uh, congregation uh, it was an interesting combination of people. You had the technology people, the, the, the cryptologists who, who really founded this. I mean, this is a cryptography thing more than anything else. So you have people who are just theoretically into cryptography who found, found it fascinating and got into it. You had, well, the guys who were doing it because it was totally anonymous and they could finance their illegal activities. You had those guys. You have libertarians, financial libertarians who don't want government control and government centralization, that this is an ideal currency for them to be involved with, at least theoretically, if not practically. So you had this interesting consortium of of people coming from a lot of different angles into it. But what you didn't have was a professional financial people. Okay? I mean, it was tech no geeks and cryptographers and libertarians but you know where was wall street 
Well, within the past year, certainly within the past six months or so, we've had more and more professional financial people get involved with this as a speculative nature, saying, hey, you know, if we can invest in this, if we can, you know, we think it's going down, we'll short it. We're betting on where Bitcoin is going to go. So now we've had the professional financial guys into it. So if you look at the Bitcoin sites today versus looking at them a year ago, they're emphasizing totally different things. A year ago, they were talking about the technology. They were talking about, you know, how can we improve the cryptography and that sort of thing. Now it's just, well, where's the price going to go when they're applying financial models? And, and I, I love watching these financial I apply this model to it, and the price is going to be exactly 287.3 in, in exactly, you know, seven days and because it follows this model. And, 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 and that's a world I'm not familiar with and don't want to get familiar with, but they're into it now. And it's almost like that's, that's where the Bitcoin train is going today. Now, whether they will get tired of that or not is the question. And whether it can settle back down and we can start talking about it as a viable currency again. Uh, you know, a year ago, we were talking about well, what merchants are going to sign up to accept Bitcoin. Today, it's you know, what financial traders are dealing with it. The world has totally shifted, certainly within the past six months, on Bitcoin. Although, again, what's ironic is like, yeah, certainly they, they have this focus on Bitcoin uh, and thinking of it in terms of a speculative currency or just a way to, uh, to centralize wealth into their own hands. But the, again, the real innovation of it is that it decentralizes things. And, uh, you know, something we haven't talked about much is that, uh, you know, with, with the decentralized nature, uh, you can do micropayments and you can, you, it allows... You know, if I want to pay somebody in Bangladesh, you know, like half a penny to do something, uh, that that becomes like a feasible idea. I don't know if half a penny is, is a reasonable amount, but, uh, you know, one penny, right? Like, you know, in the past, you can't pay somebody a penny to do something because it doesn't like a halfway across the world. Like, how am I going to send somebody halfway across the world a penny? It costs them more than a penny to send them that penny. So so what's interesting is it adds a finer degree of granularity to the global economy, which is like fun, it's fundamentally game changing, and um, if you just think about that, you know that's 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 why this is so important. That's that's well, it's one of the reasons why this is so important. The fact that you can do that micro value transfer means that we can, you know, if I have a penny lying around, it doesn't make sense for me to have that penny because I can't do anything with it. But somebody in Bangladesh could do something with a penny. Um, so. So anyway, that's, I mean, that's, again, that's more macro stuff. I do want to talk a little bit more about the engineering side of things. Could you describe what a mining pool is? A mining pool is a collection of miners. Um, you know, we, we talk about the huge investment and the ongoing expense of doing Bitcoin mining because of the cost of the computers. Well, one, you know, one way to do that is simply to spend the money, right? Yeah, people or organizations have the money to do that investment. The other way to get around it is to have multiple individuals gather together into a pool to do the mining. And there are dozens of, of mining pools out there that you can join uh, so that you can apply your whatever amount of computing power you have to the pool. The pool works together, essentially, to, to solve the equations and the calculations and hopefully you know earn, earn the Bitcoins from, from the mining there. Um, even in, in even in a mining pool, though uh, size matters. That you're com even within a mining pool, you're competing with other miners within that pool. So if you think you can just get into it with a ten-year-old laptop or something, <laughs> that's probably not going to work because you're not going to be participating much compared to somebody who's bringing a little bit more power to the pool. Uh, pools work, and now oh, there's dozens of different ways in which they distribute the funds, a kind of a first-in, first-out, who solved it first, who solved it last. Uh, some of them distribute it more, more equally. Uh, you, know, you, you can do it, again, you Google mining pools, you, you can find them, and I talk about them a lot in the book also in, in terms of best approaches to it, but it is a way that you know. Again, you still we're talking about power users here. We're not talking about your aunt Nelly with an old laptop, but you know there are ways for individuals to get involved in the Bitcoin mining via the mining pool. Be quite honest, though, uh, you're not going to get rich at that because again, you're still competing with the big big boys, and I'm not sure how viable mining pools are going to be over the long term because of that. I mean, honestly, the, uh, the companies that are investing in Bitcoin mining are spending some very, very big bucks. And, you know, getting, you know, a group of individuals together to compete against them might sound good on paper. I'm not sure 
uh, how long-term viable that is. So there is a possibility. If, when Bitcoin mining is happening all around the world, there is the possibility that two different legitimate uh, histories can develop. Uh, I, and I've heard an analogy, and this is called a Bitcoin fork, I think. So I've heard an analogy between Bitcoin mining and like digging through layers of snow to get to the hardened earth below. And so the analogy is that like the top layers of the blockchain are mutable. You know, they're wet and slushy and they can shift around and they can change. But the ground beneath, as you go back in history along the blockchain, you get to firmer and firmer truth until it's, you know, until it's truth that, that the entire world has consensus around. And so, I mean, this is kind of like just how the history of the world works. You know, we've got a certain worldview of how history is. It's not, I mean, somewhat subjective, um, but over time, we increasingly agree on what the past is and how we should frame the past. Um, so, but could you explain this analogy a little bit more? And maybe you could define what a Bitcoin fork is. Well, it has to do with things being done in multiple places in real time by different people or entities in that, you know, I'm, let's say I'm working on this particular block over here. Uh, somebody else is working on a different block over there. I, that is verifying I, the transactions within right, the exactly, block. Exactly. My block gets added to the version of the blockchain I have on my computer. That other person's block gets added to his version of the blockchain that he has on his computer. Now, we haven't talked to each other yet, right? I don't know about his work. He doesn't know about my work. We have essentially created two different versions of the blockchain or what we call blockchain fork. Now, I start my version of the blockchain starts getting propagated through the network. The other person's version of the blockchain with, with his block added starts getting propagated through the network. So at the very initial stages, we've got multiple versions of the blockchain out there. Now, the older parts of both blockchains are identical. They're identical. It's just this newer bit that's been added is what's different. And what has to happen over time, and it happens actually quite rapidly, is that the, the two versions get... Um, well, they get meshed together, and uh, and they get synchronized essentially, so that my block will be added to that version of the blockchain, and that person's block will be added to my version of the blockchain, and we will have the same blockchain. Now, by the time that happens, somebody else has created a new block over here, and somebody else has created a new block over there. So again, we've got different versions of the blockchain on the tail end, right? The head end, the body is still the same. It's just the tail end is constantly being fiddled with. And that comes into synchronization over time as the different versions of the blockchain, you know, merge and get put together. It, it, it sounds like, oh, man, it's a big problem, but, but, it, but it works itself out much faster than you would think. And it is, as I like the snow analogy, but, you know, it is almost like having snakes with different tails out there that eventually the tails merge together. Right. Definitely. Um and so, so we've discussed Bitcoin and blockchain in, internals somewhat. So let's zoom out and talk a little bit about the macroeconomics. If Bitcoin is so great, why are new cryptocurrencies being created? Well, uh, it's more of a technological reason than anything else in that uh, the, the cryptographers and the technical people behind it think they can do a better job. <laughs> you know, everybody's trying to improve the technology. Uh, you know, it's not that Bitcoin is perfect. It isn't. It w and it, and it, it wasn't the first to go down this route, and it won't be the last to go down this route. It just it put everything together in the right way at the right time. Now, since then, we have other currencies out there that uh, – and if you go to, you know, a lot of these Bitcoin exchanges, they're actually cryptocurrency exchanges, and they exchange more than just Bitcoin. But the thinking is, well, you know, Bitcoin did it this way, but it has these faults. So can we improve on that? So you have, I mean, literally, you know, over 100 different cryptocurrencies all taking the same blockchain-type-based approach, but tweaking it here and there to try and, you know, if, if there's a little issue over here, well, can we fix that little issue and can we do it without introducing new issues? And you know the way technology works. They're just trying to improve the technology. You know, that's why when people say, well, is Bitcoin going to be here, you know, 20 years from now? I don't know. Probably not. But... I'm sure cryptocurrency will be, and it'll be something that looks like Bitcoin, but has just been improved because they've got a different crypto, cryptographic uh, algorithm behind it, or they're approaching things just a little bit different or whatnot, trying to work the kinks out of it. Right. And in some sense, 
like the U.S. dollar that we have around today is nothing like the U.S. dollar that we had 50 years ago. We could say, yeah, it's the U.S. dollar still, but now it's all digital. Now we have derivatives. We have uh, you know all, all kinds of all kinds of new innovations that have bu- been built sort of atop the U.S. dollar. Um, but we don't think of it as as this updated, uh, changed changed entity. Um, so. What else is going on in the blockchain space that we haven't talked about that is exciting to you? Well, um, I, I think the progress on this front has slowed a little bit, but it, but it is happening. Is the, the using it in, in terms of currency, uh, that looking at trying to make it a little bit more mainstream? I mean, be honest. You know, if you were dealing in Bitcoin a year, if you're dealing in Bitcoin today, it, it's a bit of a hassle. It's not as easy as you know putting in your PayPal address and, and or handing over your credit card. Okay, there's a lot more involved, which is why you know my my aunt Judy is never going to get involved with this at this <laughs> point in time, and I'd never recommend that she did. I would get no end of phone calls. Um, but um, so, but. The, the movement is to make it more user friendly and to make it more mainstream. So and and to try and take some of the risk out of it by you know not having a centralized entity you know do the guarantees, but having individual entities have a little bit more in terms of guarantees. That is the some of the newer exchanges, which they're not even calling themselves exchanges anymore, uh, that that try and have a little bit more guarantee in terms of. You know what happens to your transactions and that sort of thing, and I think that makes sense. If if it is to be a currency and not just a means of speculation, that it needs to be more user friendly. It needs to have some uh, some guarantees behind it. I mean, you know, it's not going to be like the government standing behind it, but at least if you've got a company standing behind your transactions, a big company, you know, I, you know, the founder of CNET's working on this. You got the Winklevoss twins working on it you've got you know we've got some big entities you know not just guys in their basement anymore but real you know financial people getting involved with it and that comes with pluses and minuses but one of the pluses is it's trying to make it more user-friendly easier for individuals to get involved with this uh, obviously some of the diehard people are opposed to this sort of thing they, they, they think it's going the exact but especially the libertarian type people is kind of going the exact opposite direction that they might have liked but uh, you know, if I, you know, if you and I want to use Bitcoin to pay for our online transactions at wherever, it's got to be easy to use. It's got to be as easy to use as PayPal or a credit card. So I think there's that movement happening. I, I think it slowed somewhat of late uh, as the prices fluctuated so much. You know, I, yeah, I hate to to always think of Bitcoin in terms of price. But that really is an important thing. I mean, we, we've had the price go from zero to a thousand and back down to two hundred. And I mean, you don't want to get involved with something that's that that volatile. It but is a proxy the, for adoption. Yeah. So, but if the price stabilizes, if it plays out in the two hundred fifty to three hundred dollar range, and it kind of stays there, now the financial guys aren't going to like it because they don't have the big gains and the big losses to, to, to profit from. But the people who use it, it's just it's more stable. You know, I know that if I'm buying a big screen TV today, that that's worth one and a half bitcoins. It's not worth three, and it's not worth 0.5. I know that it's approximately one and a half bitcoins, and we can deal with it that way. And for it to be a viable currency, it has to stabilize. The speculation has to. There's always going to be spec. You know, they'll be speculating if it goes up a dollar. You know, it doesn't have to go up a thousand dollars for speculation to exist. There will always be speculation, but it needs the vol the volatility needs to decrease. It needs to stabilize more, and I don't know whether we're seeing that yet or not. Certainly, for the past four or five months or so, it's been kind of in this two hundred fifty to three hundred dollar range, and that's a start. That'll get you know when it's stable, we will be less interested in speculation and more interested in making this work. You know whether that's with the technology behind the scenes or the technology in the interface to get it to the end user. But you know, as we said all along, it's the technology that's important, not the price on this thing. So if the price has to stabilize, and then we can focus more on what's real behind the whole cryptocurrency thing. So to begin to close off, um, part of the motivation within this podcast is to um, iron out some of the uh, elitism that is in uh, the world of software engineering. Because I th- uh, you know most of the guests that I have on Software Engineering Daily are 
people who are very familiar with, um, you know, deeply technical topics, you know, programming languages, distributed systems. These are people that have studied computer science, they've studied programming all their lives. Um, but the thing is that the space of so- what we call software engineering um, is growing so much. And at the same time, the space of things that are not affected or are not in the scope of software engineering, that's kind of contracting. And so, um, you know, part of, part of the motivation for this podcast is to, is to be accepting and to be inviting of people who are not traditional software engineer people into the fold of the world of software engineering and computer science, not only because they, they can and they should be here, but because we need them, essentially. So, so that's part of the motivation for, for bringing you on the, on, on the podcast, and, you, and you've been so, uh, you know, so great and so good, so explanatory uh, at, at, um, at explaining the, the, the aspects of Bitcoin that are, are hard for even engineers to understand. But, you know, you know people like my parents, right, or my <laughs> sister, they should be able to understand this stuff because there's no opting out, right? There's no opting out in the future of uh, technology. You can't just say, I'm going to go and do this, this career that doesn't involve technology because those careers are all going away. And so, you know, th- that's part of the motivation for this podcast. So, so to close off, I kind of want to get some idea. Do you have, I mean, since you're not like a programmer, but you, you were able to learn this stuff on your own. This is a brand new technology and you're not like some young spry 13 year old with, you know, just this, uh, you know, neuroplastic brain. Um, how is it that you were able to learn this brand new topic uh, and and teach yourself everything you needed to know about Bitcoin to write a book called The Ultimate Guide to Bitcoin? Well, well thank you for not referring to me as a 13-year-old spry uh, whatever. I, <laughs> and I, actually have, I actually have done some programming, but this will date me. I did programming in college using Fortran on punch cards. I mean, I you know, that – that dates me, unfortunately, and I've debased programming, whatever. So that, that way back in the past. Um, now, I think the key thing with any technology, especially when you're talking about the people who create the technology, the people who listen to this podcast, is it's very easy to get caught up in the technical details. That's what you do every day, right? You're in there digging through the bits of code. You're making sure that this works with this and you don't get an error message. You know, I mean, that's what you do every day. It is very easy to lose sight of what that technology is going to be used for and who's going to be using it. Uh, you know, my background really is in marketing. I mean, I'm a writer, but I went to college uh, and got a marketing degree. And one of the nice things about marketing, one of the focuses on marketing is you always focus on the user or the customer. In fact, my mantra throughout all the years has always been think like the customer. You know, I really don't care that much about the nuts and bolts of the technology because there are guys who do, who are listening to this podcast, and they'll work it out. I mean, you can work out just about anything, right? you got the smart guys in the right room. But what's important is you serve the needs of the user, of the customer, and you make the, the technology work towards those needs. So I'm always thinking about, okay, well, you know, I'm thinking about my Aunt Judy or my, or my brother or the neighbor across the way or whatnot and how they use the technology. And then... Then we can backtrack. Then we can figure out how to build what it is for them. But you got to figure out what it is they want to do and what it is they need to do. And in the case of this cryptocurrency thing, you say, okay, well, how, you know, my neighbor next door, how in the world does this affect them? And today, the answer is really not much, but it could for this reason and this reason and this reason. And then you start backtracking. Well, what's important to that? And what builds that? And what feeds that? And just how much information do you really need to know? you know, to delve into this. And, you know, today, because we are in the, you know, if we were in the automobile industry, we're in the age where people are kind of bringing along a writing mechanic with them, right? <laughs> that they've got to, the thing's going to break down somewhere between here and there. You know, we're in the very, very early stages of this, of this crypto technology, measured in years, not even in decades. So, and in the early stages of anything, you got to know a lot more about it because you got to get your hands more dirty. Well, and, and because of that, my neighbor's probably not going to get involved with that because they're busy cleaning their pool and cutting their grass right now, taking their kids to soccer lessons. But, you know, five years from now, when this becomes a lot more common and becomes a lot easier to use, yes, then they probably will be involved in it. And they will need to know less about the technology at that point because the technology will become more invisible. I mean, I know – I don't know how my toaster works. 
what I do, but you know, you don't have to. All you need to know is put a piece of toast in it and it works. Well, you know, for technology to, to go out into the general populace, that's how it has to be. And, and yeah, everybody listen to this podcast. You're sitting there, you know, you're taking the toaster apart and putting it back together and making it work better. And that's great. And we need that. But let's not lose sight in the whole process of who's using the toaster and what they're using the toaster for. And maybe they want a better piece of toast or whatever. But, you know, always try to, you know, step back a little bit from the nuts and bolts and say, okay, well, why, you know, who's using this? What do they want out of it? And, you know, they really don't care whether you, know, you use this programming language or that programming language or, you know, what object library you use behind it. They, you know, that, that becomes irrelevant. It's important to us who are building things, but not to the people who are using things. So, you know, in terms of how I teach myself, I start with the end user and work backwards. And that's how I, I do any technology. Awesome. Michael Miller, thanks so much for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. It's been nice being here with you too, too Jeff. <laughs>